King and honor, glory and power be unto the Ancient of Days. From every nation, all of creation, bow before the Ancient of Days. Every tongue in heaven and earth shall
just because maybe I'm the only instrument out here so you can actually hear yourselves. I happen to think that's a really good thing. So you know what? Maybe we need to sing that chorus again. Maybe I need to do one of these things. Can we do that, church? Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship his
Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in our testimony. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from... Sing that again. right from Psalm 42, um, as the deer pants for streams of water. 
so my soul longs after thee. We're going to sing that prayer. might be new to some of you, but this is, in fact, a pretty old song, so I, I think you all will remember it. But let's make this our prayer, continuation of our prayer this morning. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship Thee. You alone are my strength, my shield. To You alone may my spirit yield. You starting it as the deer. As the deer panted for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet is talking to the people of Israel about some of the choices they've made, and this will come up a little bit later in my message, but I felt compelled to share some of it with you now. And in this declaration to God's people, Jeremiah communicates them that they've turned away from the spring of life and are, are looking for their source of water from cisterns in their own lives that are broken, broken cisterns. When I was a teenager, my family and I lived in my grandparents, great-grandparents' old farmhouse, and outside there was a cistern. Some of you know what that is. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But it was kind of like a, a, an old-time rain barrel, if you will, where they would collect the water and save it for later. But just a few feet away, there was a well where the, the water was ice cold and, and, and just incredibly pure. In my mind, as my mom and dad would talk to me about what a cistern was, I'd say, why would you drink water from a cistern when you've got this well right next to it? 
Jeremiah is warning the people, says, you've got this spring of living water available to you, but you keep going back to a cistern, it's broken, it's cracked, it's empty. And I just can't help but feel that this morning that there's some of you that are leaning upon your own cracked cisterns, your source of life, your source of hope today, when before us, just a few feet away, is a well of life-giving, living water. So as we go to prayer this morning, I, I don't know what it is that brought you here, I don't know what you're dealing with, I don't know what it is you've carried with you, or what you're dragging behind you. Some of you resonate very clearly with that, and you, you, you know what it means to be living life as a broken cistern. You're thirsty. You've come to the right place. Because here in our presence, the spring of living water. We pray today, and, and you're holding on to something that's too heavy, or too big, or too hard, you're just tired and weary or you're lonely or discouraged take a drink from the well recognize God among us and receive all that he has for us this morning let us pray together God it is good to be with you this morning while the reality and truth is we're always with you you're always among us you're always beside us there, there's times in life where it's easier to recognize your presence than others. And I pray that this next hour is such a time. We would hear your voice. We would feel your embrace. Recognize, God, if you're lifting us up or holding us up. If you're pushing or pulling, whatever it might be, Lord, help us to recognize who you are, what it is you have for us. May we not cling so tightly to the stuff of this world, be it physical or tangible, or whether it be emotional or mental. Lord, where may it be spiritual, Lord, help us to let go of those things that are preventing us from embracing you. Because, Father, if, if we miss that part, if we choose to live life as a broken cistern, this emptiness, this struggle, this difficulty, this weight, is going to be something that's constant with us. Help us to recognize right next to us is this well of living water. Lord, I pray we'd recognize today your poured out spirit. We'd hear your voice. We would hear your invitation. We'd be drawn to you. God, I pray you'll be glorified in our midst today. I do, Lord, pray for the brokenhearted, for the lonely, for the discouraged. You know the depths of, of the root cause of all that they're experiencing, perhaps even more so than we do ourselves. I pray for the physical needs that are represented in this place, the diagnoses, Lord, that have been disappointing or, or the reports from doctors that have not been encouraging. Lord, I lift them up to you. Lord, also in this place are testimonies of your touch, of, of your faithfulness, of your provision, of the times you have answered prayers. So we praise you and we come to you all at the same time because you've proven yourself to be faithful. The relationships, Lord, in this room that need reconciled, that need healing. For those that just might need to say they're sorry. Father, would you show us the way to fix those things perhaps that we've broken? For the moms and dads, Father, that are struggling knowing what to do for their children, 
whether they be 6 or 16 or 36, Lord, they still are always our children, and we struggle as parents at times to know what's best. The world fights against us so desperately. Give us wisdom and boldness to lead as, as you have called us to lead. Lord, as we open up your word today, we push aside our agendas, our preconceived ideas that we, we perhaps know it all, and Lord, we want to receive from you what it is you have for us. We want to hear from you. Lord, I pray you would change your people for the time, Lord, that we have spent in your presence today. Be glorified, God, I pray. So glad that you're with us this morning. If, you, if you're visiting, we're, 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 thank you for choosing to, to come and to worship with us together. If, if you've been gone for a while and you notice there's this big tower of pizza boxes, uh, that's just to say that we've really got a problem and we eat too much pizza in our church. Um, no. Reality, it's kind of an illustration we've been using over this, this, these last several weeks in the midst of this conversation we've been having about these gods at war in our lives, these things that we choose to, to allow into our lives, that they have, have a part of our lives, and the, the way that we go about choosing them and wanting them. We all have our favorite kind of pizza, things that we like, our favorite toppings, our favorite style of crust, our, our favorite even pizza place to go to. And then we like it, it's identified by what's in the box. And the idea that we're wanting to expose, what we're kind of dig a little bit deeper into, is that sometimes we let things into our box that don't belong. We're building up to this crescendo, if you will, in a couple of weeks where we talk about uh, ultimately this God of religion and what it is we've made it and how we've at times unwittingly perhaps or maybe intentionally put God in a box as long as he fits our preferred style and taste, as long as it's topped the right way, as long as we receive it in the right amount of time. And, and God's been doing some work among us and been revealing some things to us and I've enjoyed eating pizza every week for your spiritual benefit. And, and I've been, so this week I want to share with you uh, what's called an Ohio Valley style pizza. You may have heard of Ohio Valley style pizza. Not, not too many of you. Well, you're not. Well, I'll, I'll keep my opinions to myself. <laughs> when we moved to West Virginia a few years ago, we were introduced the, the very first day as we were unloading the moving truck. Our church came, and we were about 30 people there unloading our truck. I don't think we lifted a box. It was really great. And they brought pizza. They were going to have a big pizza party on the back deck. And they brought this pizza. It was this big box. It was a rectangular pizza cut into squares. And they just said, this is the best pizza you'll ever have. It's called DiCarlo's. And, and you can see the picture of DiCarlo's pizza there. And that DiCarlo's pizza is actually in Hilliard, Ohio. So if you want to try Ohio Valley pizza after hearing about this, it's not too far away. But what's unique about DiCarlo's pizza, and you have to see a picture of DiCarlo's pizza, as you look at it, you think, hmm, that doesn't look like it's fully cooked. You wouldn't be wrong. Because what they do with DiCarlo's pizza, when Primo DiCarlo came back from World War II, he, he discovered that, that this place in Italy had this thing called pizza. So he went back to his parents who had this bakery called DiCarlo's Bakery. They were all really good at making the crust. They started making this pizza, but they had a little twist to it. Their pizza, they cooked the crust and the sauce. Once it comes out of the oven, they throw on the cheese and the toppings. So you got a little bit of crisp and hard, and you got a little bit of cold and, I don't know, just mushy. I don't know, call it what you will. <laughs> and it's becoming this very popular thing. It's in the Pizza Hall of Fame. Who, who thought there was such a thing? It's called Ohio Valley style pizza. Now, I got to be honest. This might offend some of my friends watching online from the Ohio Valley or anywhere else. We're really not fans. Um, it's, the crust is great. 
really good stuff. And this might be something that appeals to you. You might want to go and try that. I don't know. But I like my cheese melted. And I like my toppings to be mixed in and kind of gooey and, and kind of, yeah, I want them to be hot too. I want them to almost burn my tongue. I want the pepperonis to curl up a little bit and be a little crispy on the edges. That's, that's my preference. I don't like them to be cold. Now, we like Ohio Valley pizza once we cook it the second time. <laughs> and you get a little, little crisper sheet on your bottom of your oven, your pizza pan, and you crisp that stuff up. Then it's, it's okay. But uh, this might be something you would be interested in. But for us, it just wasn't the same. It just didn't feel like it was done. But often in times, isn't that how we kind of go through life is that we want it to be our way and we want it to kind of be the, the, our preference and to meet our needs. And today we're going to get to the really the, the heart of, of, of that kind of conversation. Well, that's natural for us to feel that way, to have preferences and things that we desire and things that we would choose. It can also be a trap for us if we're not careful. And the God that we're going to talk about today that's at war for our hearts is the God of me, the God of you. It's a difficult conversation to have. And to be honest, I had to work really hard to whittle this down to where we could fit it into our conversation this morning. There's so much we could talk about. And the passage that I settled on really wasn't even one that I liked or wanted to go with, but yet it's what God's given to me today to share with you. I'll be reading out of Daniel chapter 4. And we're all familiar with the book of Daniel, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. That's a really common one. But before Daniel was in the lion's den, there were several other important encounters in, in the book of Daniel. Uh, we know that Daniel, the book of Daniel begins with Babylon coming into to Israel and, and overtaking Israel and taking them into captivity. And Daniel and his friends, Rakshak and Benny, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken with them into Babylon. And we, we know there's a test early on about them maintaining their identity and staying true to, the, to, to the, the, their practices and avoiding the foods of Babylon. And then there's the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about the statue, and no one could tell him what the statue meant. And Daniel told him what the dream meant. So Nebuchadnezzar built this big golden statue. He says, whenever you hear the music, everybody has to bow down to the statue, and everybody does except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He throws them into the fiery furnace, yet they don't burn. Nebuchadnezzar peers into the furnace and sees not three but four people walking around, untied. They emerge from the furnace without a singed hair or even the smell of smoke. Nebuchadnezzar sees, whoa, this God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's the real deal. He's a powerful God. And if we turn really quickly to Daniel chapter 3, we see at the very end, Nebuchadnezzar sends a decree to the people of any nation or language who says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they'd be cut into pieces. Their houses turn into piles of rubble, for no other God can save this way. A pretty powerful declaration. So Nebuchadnezzar, early on in Daniel chapter 3, understands who the God of Israel is. But he quickly forgets. In Daniel chapter 4, we see something very unique. Uh, almost kind of hard to fathom. And maybe this is why I struggle with it. We see that the book itself, the chapter itself, was written by none other than King Nebuchadnezzar. How could God use someone like him to write a chapter in this book that is so incredibly holy and life-giving? Well, the story that Nebuchadnezzar shares is a very personal one. It's a very timely one for us this morning. 
written by an evil king, a, a merciless king. This king of Babylon, which at the time was the most powerful city in all the world, he, he is the leader of the most powerful city, the most powerful kingdom, located originally in what's now Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar has this reputation. Saddam Hussein, you might remember that name from several decades ago, uh, looked to Nebuchadnezzar as his idol, as someone to look up to. We see in Jeremiah 39, Nebuchadnezzar murdering the sons of, of one of the kings of Judah right before he gouges out the king's eyes. His last image he would ever see was his sons dying. This is the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was. He was ruthless. Other rulers of Judah were literally roasted to death over a fire. He was cruel, powerful. How could a man like that write a chapter like we see in Daniel chapter 4? We begin in verse 1 through 3. It's King Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And what Nebuchadnezzar has done in the very first few verses of, of chapter 4 is written this worship song for us. Look how incredible God is. There's no talking to him about being uh, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now he talks about him being the most high God. Nebuchadnezzar's connected some dots. That in itself is kind of an amazing thing to think about. You wonder how in the world could this have happened? And Nebuchadnezzar is going to now go into, use this literary device that we call reverse chronology. Perhaps you've seen a TV show where you tune in and instead of kind of them building up to it, right away you see this climactic ending, this incredible situation. How did the hero find himself in, in these, this incredible predicament? And then there's like this 12 hours earlier or two days before. And now the rest, of, now that they've got you hooked, you, you're not going to turn it off now. You want to see how he ended up getting there and what's he going to do to get out of it. You tune in. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing in this moment. He's telling this story with this reverse chronology. And he's going to begin by telling us this incredible thing that's happened to him and all that he's learned from it. We see the conclusion, and now we want to read the rest of the chapter to figure out how it came about, how it all unfolded, how it begins to make sense. We see the end of the story. Now let us see where we fit in the middle. Remember this context, the Babylonian exile, Nebuchadnezzar is in control of the greatest kingdom. We see in verses 4 and 5, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, and I had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar was a dreamer. Would you sometimes wish God would give you dreams? Sometimes I like to have these kind of spiritual dreams, but then I'm afraid I wouldn't be able to interpret them either, and I'm not sure who I would go to because I don't have anybody like Daniel in my life who could tell me what they mean. But Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he says right away that the dream made him afraid. I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind he writes, terrified me. Now remember, he's content, he's prosperous, he's literally the king of the world in this moment. He's at the pinnacle of his success as a ruler. He, he's living the good life. What else could he possibly want? He has this nightmare. And in this nightmare, there's this enormous, there's this big, giant tree. The tree's so big, it's visible from the ends of the earth. It's abundant, it's very fruitful, it's something everybody wants to sit underneath and be a part of and rest in its shade or, or swing from its branches. 
we see in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar says, In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by him. He's terrified by this vision of what he's seeing in his dream, that this, this word that this holy one has brought, this message he's received. He doesn't know what to make of it. He's not sure what to do with it. It gets his attention. So he calls for all of his wise men and his magicians to come and interpret from. But of course, they don't have a clue. And I don't know why he didn't start with Daniel, because Daniel got it right the first time. But he finally sends for Daniel, who at this point is the chief of his wise men. Why go for the little guys if you can go for the chief? Why, go, why not just start there? But when Daniel hears the dream, Daniel's listening to the king, and he's got this, this facial expression, this look upon his face like, uh-oh. I'm going to have to tell Nebuchadnezzar what this really means. Daniel right away understands what Nebuchadnezzar has seen. He understands that the king is disturbed. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, what, what is it? Tell me what it is that God has revealed to you. And Daniel tells him the truth. Verse 20 of chapter 4, he says, you, you are the tree. I think Nebuchadnezzar probably knew that. Perhaps that's why he was afraid. If he knew he was the tree that everyone could see, that was so fruitful and large and big. And I think his fear was that he would be cut down. And Daniel says, you are the tree. No one's more powerful than, than Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. Who or how would such a large tree come to be cut down? Daniel goes on in verse 25, you will be driven away from people. You will, you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, all that he was experiencing, living in, comes crashing down. You ever lived in life and said, boy, this is my dream come true? Versus all what I dreamed it would be like. This is what I imagined it would be, only to find a season of life where it comes crashing down. See, Nebuchadnezzar, while he just a chapter earlier has acknowledged who God is, now gets away from that experience and starts to relish in all that he has accomplished, begins to get a little bit of a big head, even bigger than before. And now, forgetting who God is, begins to think of himself as a God. The God of Israel is about to give him a reality check. I think it's important for us to pause in, in this moment to kind of give ourselves that same reality check, same self-diagnosis, if you will, asking ourselves the questions that maybe Nebuchadnezzar might have asked that could have avoided the fate that was about to happen to him, asking ourselves, do we consider ourselves as gods, if you will, rulers of our lives, in control of everything, we, we, we kind of live life according to our own measures and expectations. What questions might we ask us? Well, 
There's four simple ones. There's probably a lot more than that, but today we're going to stick with four. First one is what motivates us? What's your motivation? You get up in the morning, you go about your, you start your day. What is it that you're doing it for? What is your motivation? For Nebuchadnezzar, his motivation was to impress others. It was, it was to maintain his position. It was to expand his kingdom. And in fact, early in chapter 3, we read about him building this, this statue of himself, wanting everyone to bow down to it and to worship it. Otherwise, you would be put to death. He was consumed with everyone being impressed, whether they were forced to or not, by the threat of a fiery furnace. He wanted that attention. Now, Nebuchadnezzar himself, though, was also, uh, because of his wanting to impress others, uh, built what came, has come to be known one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. They were massive gardens he built for one of his wives who came from Media, where there were mountains and, and there's vegetation. So Nebuchadnezzar uh, built this um, hanging garden for her, this, this artificial mountain and planted gardens that hung down the side of the structure. It looked like these gardens were growing in the air. It was, it was an incredible design for the time. Over 300 feet, water was lifted from the Euphrates River to water the gardens, all to impress others. What do we build to try to impress others? What do we do to try to get others to notice us? Second question we ask, what's our standard for success? What is it that is our measure for finally having arrived or having accomplished something or make, making ourselves feel comfortable or content? For Nebuchadnezzar, his personal gain his main palace was 350 yards long. It's 1,000 feet long, about two-tenths of a mile long. Today we might be amazed that a home is 10,000 or 12,000 square feet, but his palace was estimated to be 630,000 square feet. That's a lot of bathrooms. It's a lot of cleaning. It's a big staff to take care of such a place. How in the world would you, why would you want something so big? For him, he wanted to impress others. That was his standard for success. The bigger, the better. Because it was bigger than everybody else's, and he was more successful than them. Third question, what's your source of power? Where do you go for help? When you need strength, where do you find it? When you need refreshed, renewed, where or who do you turn to? Nebuchadnezzar, it was self-empowerment. He looked at himself. Verse 28, we see in chapter 4, he looks to his success, his what he has gained, what he has accomplished, and he can, comes to this conclusion that it's all because of who he is. He's the source of his power. And ultimately, the fourth question is, what's the purpose of your life? King Nebuchadnezzar was personal happiness. Everything he did was motivated by a desire to be happy and satisfied, to stay on top. As long as he was on top, nothing could harm him, nothing could hurt him. He was where he wanted to be. How Nebuchadnezzar answered those questions are the same answers that, that we give when we begin to worship the God of me. We might not do it in the same way or at the same level, but we, we can be guilty of doing the same things. Looking for power in a place that's really not powerful. Looking for the success or, or measuring our success in a way that's not helpful. Being motivated by the things of this world instead of the things of God. Having a purpose that is selfish. Instead of giving to others for our own glory instead of for God's glory. How do we answer those questions? Because what God's about to do to Nebuchadnezzar, he tends to allow those same things to happen to us. Nebuchadnezzar is sitting on the throne of his own heart. 
looks at himself as a, th- as a person or a thing to be worshipped. And Daniel tells the king that you're about to be cut down. Nebuchadnezzar, you'll soon be living like an animal. You'll be eating grass like cattle. In verse 27, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. There's still a way out of this. You can still avoid this. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. That may be then that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel tries to warn the king. But one of the problems of making yourself a god or ourselves a god, we don't tend to take advice very well. Have you ever been doing a project, you feel pretty comfortable or confident, and someone gives you advice, they're sitting back, they tell you how they would do it? If it's not the way that you would do it, what's our response? Usually not really good. We kind of ignore that or dismiss it. Sometimes there's wisdom in receiving advice from others. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Just as Daniel had foretold, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, it's been a year now, he says, is this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Nothing happens for 11 months. I can kind of see Nebuchadnezzar relaxing, thinking, oh, it was just a dream. Daniel, Daniel missed this one, didn't get this one right. Starts to feel really good about himself, puffing out his chest and making himself feel really confident and, and successful. He walks outside, looks at all that he's created, all that he's built. It's by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Verse 33, immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. It was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched in the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. He basically loses his sanity for a season. Can't communicate, can't live with others, has to live amongst the fields. Can you imagine one day you're the king of all of Babylon? The next day your king is gone? He's out in the fields? on all fours, sleeping outside, his hair mat, so matted it becomes thick like, like the eagle, eagle feather. That's the image we were given. His claws become so long, his nails untrimmed. That's our king? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. We've heard that phrase used. Imagine what's taken place. He couldn't live amongst the people, sleeping at night outside. Life uh, has a way of doing the same things to us. The good and bad times, they they tend to pull on us. Uh, They tend to cause us to respond in certain ways, whether it be a time of panic or anxiousness or impatience, being impatient or being broken or proud. Whatever life might give to us, we can tend to respond in different ways, but often it will take us to the same place. Let me jump real quickly to Genesis chapter 3. In just chapter 3, we read of Adam and Eve. They, they've been created by God, and, and Satan shows up in the garden one day, and Satan starts to tempt them. In verse 5, Satan tells them, "For you, you won't surely die when you eat the fruit, for God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, that itself's not the lie. The lie is that you will not die. So what, what Satan tells Adam and Eve in Genesis in the garden is that, you know, there's this fruit that you can eat, and you can see things the way God sees them. 
And you can kind of take control of your own life and you can then make your own choices. But the lie that we will not die is untrue. Spiritually, we do die. We separate ourselves from God. We find ourselves in these situations in life where things are either going really well or things are going really bad. We find we want to take control. We want to take credit. We want the glory to come back to us. We want things to be the way we want them to be or God's too slow in his response. And this God of me it, it, the one that we constantly wrestle with, it's, it's our nature. Before we receive the Holy Spirit and sanctification occurs and we're, the sinful nature is removed from us, this is our nature to have this battle. And we deal with these symptoms of pride and arrogance and insecurity and loneliness because we buy into the lie. The lie that Satan told Adam and Eve is still being told to us today. You can see things the way God sees them. You can be God of your own life. You can regain control. This conversation of this God of me, it's an important one. Nebuchadnezzar learns it the hard way. There was a time many years ago, I was just starting out in ministry, and I was went on as a part of our one of our teen trips, and we went to a lake, and we were uh, boating and tubing and riding jet skis, a lot of fun. But part of our, our trip was always to do kind of a, a service project as well. And this particular weekend, we were taking down a tree that was between one of these lake cabins. It was kind of dangerous. It was hanging over a cabin, and the, the, the homeowner wanted the part of it removed. And why they thought it was wise to hire a bunch of teenagers and their leaders, I'm really not sure. But, but we said, sure, we'll take care of that. We started to cut down the branches and pull the tree away from the house, and there was one big piece left. And before going into ministry, I used to work for a, a pretty large a consumer products company in, in their country. I was a research and development scientists for them and so I was really good with numbers and math and I'm looking at this branch I'm looking at what we have available to us and I came up with this idea if we have the ropes we pull it here and we cut it just the right time it should fall and land right here and there's another gentleman that was one of our youth volunteers on the trip he also was an engineer kind of a scientist he's looking at me he says you're just a soap scientist that's what he liked to call me I never worked with soap but he liked to call me a soap scientist he says what do you know about cutting down trees fair question because the answer is nothing I'd never cut one down before. But I understood science. I understood physics. I understood what should happen. So he goes, well, I don't have a better idea. <laughs> That's really not the best reason to cut down a tree hanging over someone's house, but hey. So we tied the ropes, and we put up the weight on it, and we started to pull on that thing. And thank God, that piece fell exactly where I thought it would fall, because <laughs> would not have had to have wanted to repair that house. And my, our friend that was with us, he sat later that night as we were having our times of devotion and sharing. He goes, you know, I was really humbled today because I didn't. I sat back and I watched for that tree to fall somewhere else. It fell exactly where it should. I was. I could learn something from a soap scientist. What he said. And I said, well, don't ever call me again to remove your tree. But the point is, sometimes things that happen in life where we're humbled, where there's different ways of doing things, where people know the different, a better way of doing things, and sometimes it's hard for us to acknowledge that. That's the last tree I've cut down. I don't have any desire to do it again. But if we're not careful, our arrogance or our pride can cause us to think that we know more than we probably do. Our insecurity and loneliness maybe can allow others to come in and tell us the lie we buy into it. And we have this battle going on within us. In reality, it's not against these things or these attitudes, but in reality, it's me versus God. Am I going to believe the lie? Or am I going to give the glory back to him? See, we live in a culture today, 
Young people, receive this. It's not judgmental. Just receive this. Our, our, our young people today, there's a thing called narcissism. And it's, it's becoming a significant issue in our culture. It's always, been, it's always been in our culture, but now it's growing. This social media and, and likes and loves and, and, and shares and all these different ways that we measure attention is, is kind of has, has not just creeped in. It's just come flooding in. And narcissism is, is selfishness or being conceited or egotistic. We wouldn't sit there and say, well, that's me. That describes who I am. But it, it's, it has a social focus where we want people to look at us. Or we're looking for others to give us our value. Or let, let others, to others tell us how important that we are. And that in itself, if, if that's us, then that's a clear warning that we've sat on the throne of our heart and not God. Because we find our value as Christians in God. As, as his creation. We're created in his image. We talked about image several weeks ago. As, as image bearers of Christ, that's where our value is found. Not in what others think about us. Not in how many uh, shares we get or snaps we send or, or, or followers we have. And that kind of attitude or even thinking it's rooted in this idea of am I going to serve God or am I going to serve myself? This God of me is in my best interest. God's too slow. He's not going to do it the way that I want. Or I'm going to get toppings in my pizza that I don't like. Figuratively. I want control. And let me jump to Jeremiah as I shared with us as we prayed this morning. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 and then 11 through 13. Jeremiah sharing the word of the Lord. And God says through Jeremiah, Therefore I bring charges against you, declares the Lord. And jump to verse 11. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this. This should appall us, God says. You heavens and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. We should be terrified about this. The same imagery that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar sees. My people have committed two sins. Jeremiah shares. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, Jeremiah's words, his, his prophecy in this moment, would have been looked at as being absurd. No one would, would turn away from a spring of water and, and instead rely upon a broken cistern. They would realize how fruitless and hopeless that is. That's what God is trying to communicate to us. If you're living life for yourself, wanting to do it your way, you have to understand that you are broken, God says. Broken by sin, broken by life, broken through the actions of others, whatever it might look like. We are broken and flawed people. And only through God's grace are we restored and made whole. But God says, even then, you don't have to fill yourself up. I'm this spring of living water. It's available to you. So one, you've rejected me. And two, you've chosen a worthless idol. Now, the same verse we've been reading out of Joshua chapter 24, and we'll close with today, throw away your worthless idols. And the harsh truth is for some of us today, that worthless idol is identified as a God of me. Now, God's not saying throw yourself away. He's saying throw away this attitude and beliefs that you can do it all on your own, that it's all about you, that it's all for your glory, or all for my glory, or all about what I want. Instead, recognize what it is I offer you. 
We jump back to Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar lives for a number of years as kind of a, a werewolf, if you will, a wolf man living out in the field. And after these, uh, the, the, these seven seasons have passed, at the end of that time, Scripture tells us, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Now, I don't know if there was a predetermined amount of time God said he had to do this, or if it just took Nebuchadnezzar that long to humble himself, to admit that he's wrong. I can kind of see that part, because he had a pretty big ego. He says, he raises his eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, he writes. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. This man who thought himself was a god who God turned into this wild beast eventually realizes he's just a man. And I love the fact that God had grace upon Nebuchadnezzar. If Nebuchadnezzar can receive God's grace, and so can we. We receive it the same way he did. We raise our eyes toward heaven. We proclaim and who he is. We, we praise the Most High. We give honor and we glorify Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right. All his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar has taken himself off the throne of his own heart. He now knows there's only one God, and that's not him. And I believe that faced with those same four questions we asked earlier, he would now answer them differently. What motivates you? Perhaps in impressing others, our answer becomes pleasing God. You wake up every day with your motivation of just pleasing Him, being obedient to Him, going as He's wherever He might lead us. What's your standard for success? Instead of personal gain, our answer now becomes being faithful to God. Whatever that looks like in my life, just being faithful to Him. That's my measure, that's my standard of success. What's your source of power? <laughs> That's an easy one, right? Dependence upon God. What's your purpose for life? Instead of personal happiness, our answer becomes God's glory. God's glory. And it's a tough conversation for us to have, is getting to this place where we allow God to be glorified in our lives. In, in the good moments, it's easy. In the not-so-good moments, it's hard. When your kids are making the honor roll and getting straight A's, it's easy. When they're struggling in school and they're having a tough time with others, it's hard. When you're getting the promotion at work, it's easy to give God glory, but what about when you're laid off? When you struggle with your bills, it's hard. Giving God glory and recognizing that that's our purpose in life, whatever that might look like. Do the answers become different? And I think our answers today will reveal to us what it is that's going on, that this war that's going on within us, these gods that are battling for our attention, for a seat on the throne of our hearts. The problem, big problem, <laughs> when we make ourselves God, is that we can't save ourselves. Let's not miss what Nebuchadnezzar does in verse 34. 
I raised my eyes towards heaven. That action showed God his heart was changed. You may not have the right words. You may not know how to explain what's going on in your life. It simply begins with raising our eyes towards heaven, turning back to the one who can help us make sense of it all. I invite you to stand with me. and We're going to pray. I don't know what God's doing. So maybe he's doing something I have no clue of. And as Amy comes, we're, we're going to have a time of prayer. And I just... I can't really share a message like this without giving us a chance to respond, to pray. Maybe your cistern is broken and cracked and you're dry and you're thirsty and you just need to make us take a step towards the spring of life that's in front of us. Maybe you recognize in the throne of your heart there's this little God there that you've put there yourself that just doesn't belong. And I get taking that first step is tough we lift our eyes towards heaven today, maybe God will do something. I know that he will for those that are genuine and humble and sincere. He'll do a work among us, individually and corporately, as we respond to his faithfulness. See, God doesn't want all of this to punish us or to make sure he's number one. He wants us because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. He knows better than we do. He's offering us living water today. For those who will raise their eyes towards heaven, you can receive it this morning. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Throw away what's in the way. Raise our eyes towards heaven. Let us come back to the God who loves us. If you're struggling today, our altars are open. It's a place you can come and you can receive this living water. Be made whole. Be lifted up for his glory. Father, I pray for your church. May we not be so arrogant that we're unwilling to see or to hear or have a difficult conversation with you in this time. May our ears be open to the words of Jeremiah that began with, my people have rejected me. They, they've chosen broken cisterns instead of the spring of life, giving water that's available to them. May we learn from the story of Nebuchadnezzar now that we understand the chapter a little bit better, how humbling it must have been for him to even write down what had happened to him. This king of the largest city, the greatest kingdom of the world in this day, had to acknowledge that he wasn't in control. You were. And Lord, perhaps we need the same humbling to occur in our lives this morning, or maybe it's already happening. We find ourselves in the midst of a situation where we feel lost, where we're scrambling, where we feel life is out of control. Lord, all we need to do is what Jeremiah did and lift our eyes towards heaven. doesn't mean that all of our struggles will disappear instantly. But it does mean, Lord, we become recipients of your grace. Restored, Lord, not perhaps to our thrones, but into relationship with you. 
Father, I pray that you will help us today simply lift our eyes to hear your voice, to respond accordingly. How many of us, Lord, have chapters in our lives that we could share that may not be canonized or included in the Bible, but Lord, others can benefit from our testimony, from our struggles, from our failures. There's times we've fallen short. Again, Lord, not about us. Such a story, such a testimony God becomes for your glory. May that be our purpose today. As we worship, the Lord is speaking to your heart. Our altars are open. Let's lift our eyes together towards heaven. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And the time comes, Lord, where we are humbled. May we not shy away from that and recognize that you're working on our behalf in our best interest your glory. These gods at war within us, Lord, they're real. Continue to make us aware. Continue to reveal them to us. Lord, may we continue as your people draw close to you. Thank you, Father, for giving us the room to hear process receive. You continue to be glorified among us. Help us, God, to continue to lift our eyes towards heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.